Welcome to Vertical Playpen, the podcast all about adventure and experiential education. I'm your host, Phil, and in this episode, I'm going to be answering some more listener questions. So similar to the previous two versions of this episode, I am going to be answering questions that were submitted to me by some listeners and I haven't looked at them, well, I've looked at them, but I haven't prepped for them. And I'm going to imagine that you've asked me this question, meeting me at a conference, and I am just going to go with my first reaction to it. So here we go. Here is the first question. This one comes from our regular question giver. Question asker. This comes from our regular question asker, Meg Bolger. When do you not do a warm-up activity or icebreaker? So I very rarely do a workshop or a training without doing some form of a warm-up. Even if the time constraints are very limited, so it's a very small window of opportunity, and or if it's a technical workshop where I'm teaching people level two challenge course skills, and it's very skill-based, I will still often do a warm-up. And the reason I do that is partly because I think it helps the group, but also because it helps me. I've referenced in the past this notion of a golden first activity. It's an essential for me to be able to feel like I'm flowing and doing a good job, and it kind of alleviates any tension that I feel and also the group may feel. So I think that the Adding in a warm-up is essential. You don't have to do a lot. So I would take what would be maybe an hour introductory connection-based flow that I would do and maybe pick one activity and just do it very briefly. I think it still hits the mark. And what sometimes I have to do is I will change up the framing to meet the need of the goals of the group that I'm working with. So let's say, as an example... I was going to do a level two technical workshop where I really want to focus on skill acquisition and them learning activities and me doing activities doesn't have uh, the priority. But I would do an activity such as group juggle where I'm going to use that to learn people's names. But instead, I would add a chaotic element, which means I would have them move around the space as well as throwing objects, but also move themselves around. And I might also add in uh, a pattern or an order or a sequence that they have to remember that also makes it slightly more challenging. And the context, the framing for that is talking about how this training I'm about to take them through is going to be that transition from a level one basic skill set to a more advanced level two skill set. And sometimes that can be more chaotic, even though things are similar than they've been in the past. So that would be like group juggles original activity. And now things are slightly more challenging. I've added more context, made it more challenging, but notice how the group still did well and we need to be supportive of each other through the process, even though it can be chaotic. So that would be an example of how I've taken a basic activity and maybe a warm-up activity, and and moved it and changed it into being a more framed technical activity that makes sense towards the goals of the group. So still, I'm using warm-ups, but I just have to change them slightly. And so I would recommend that still being the case with you all. You're not eliminating warm-ups from your program, but you may limit the number, and you may have to change the framing to meet the needs of your group. 
So this question is from Hannah Bailey. Hannah is a new trainer at High Five. And she asks, when... No, I skipped to the wrong question. She sent me two questions. The f- I'll have to add some context in it because I'm trying not to cut too much. So the question I was going to read, which is accidental, is when is the first adult skipping team meeting? Uh, because... We did a program recently together, and uh, we was and I was introducing or talking about like skipping as fun as a way to move from A to B. And there's no way to not be happy when you skip, from at least from my perspective. And it's also such a fast way of travel. It try to skip from place to place. Like running can be exhausting, but skipping has something light to it, something like joyful to it. And I was joking that there should be like spin classes. There should be skip classes. Anyway. There's no such first adult skipping me, although I'm sure if I did a Google search right now, I'd probably find something of that. Anyway, the question I was going to read was, is there a game you've recently revived and love to play? There was an activity that I was taught very, very early on. It was probably like the first 10 activities I ever learned, and I stopped using it, and the pandemic hit, and I introduced it again, and I now do it every single time, and that is jump in, jump out. I've referenced this activity many, many times in the podcast and elsewhere. So essentially, there are three rounds. Each round gets progressively harder. In the first round, you ask the participants to do what you tell them to do. There are four commands. First is jump in. So if you say that, you jump two feet, a two-footer jump, not two feet in distance, a two-footer jump in to the center of the circle, you say jump out you jump out away from the center and then jump left and jump right in this first round i just say it and the people do it you just follow along with me second round it gets more challenging in the second round now i have them do what i tell them to do but shout the opposite so if i say jump in i want them to all jump in but shout jump out and likewise for the rest and then the third round often the most tricky round, now they have to say what I say, but do the opposite. So it may be that I say jump in, and if I say that, they all have to shout jump in, but actually jump out. Now, I've liked that uh, recently, and I've been bringing it back because I've found that I can frame that activity in so many different ways for different outcomes dependent on the group. So almost referencing what we talked about with a warm-up, this actually might be an activity I do as a warm-up. Partly because it's a lot. There's a lot of laughter to it. Everyone kind of somewhat makes mistakes, so you're kind of in it together. But you can really tie this into different things. So back when we were really concerned about physical distance, I would do it with physical distance in mind. So I'll say that we're going to be doing this activity, and I want you to be really cautious and aware of those people to the left and right of you. If you make a mistake in this activity, then you may get too close to someone. And so we get to have an experience of what it's like to make a mistake and be too close. So as a practice for being distant more. If I'm doing, let's go back to the technical version. If I was doing a technical um, activity, I would talk about how the first round, it has familiarity. So each of the commands has stuff that we've learned prior. So jumping in, jumping out, jumping left, jumping right, things we sort of know. So the first round isn't complicated But the second and third round is taking those skills and maybe using them in a slightly different way so that they're more confusing. And how do we adapt to that and how repetition helps? And so I may, in one of the rounds that's more challenging, repeat my command over and over again and watch how we get better 
and I'll tie that into practice improving our performance. That activity, yeah, has definitely been an activity that I didn't use for a long time because I learned it one way at the start and it had no, I didn't really have the tools to be able to add or change things to it. Also, I will add that how I learned jump in, jump out was actually everyone holding hands. It was a, like a problem solving issue. They had to get, you had to get every single one of those rounds. You had to get, I think it was five or six times in a row getting it right. So when, and everyone, everyone getting it right. So it was more about a lesson around individuals affecting the larger outcome of the group. So towards the latter half, the more complicated ones, as more people make mistakes, it negatively impacts others. So they're all connected and there was all of a self-others collective kind of conversation to it. But because I only knew it that way, I didn't want to frustrate people by making having them make mistakes. And I do remember running the activity way longer than it should have been gone because people kept making mistakes and I wouldn't let it go until they got it right. I kind of put a negative impact, a thought into my brain about that activity. I think that's a funny thing. Go back and look at some of your activities, especially if you've been in this industry for a while or you've been doing these things for a while. Look back at your old ones and then actually say, did I get rid of them because I didn't like them or they had I was bored? Or because you only knew them one way and you didn't know you could change them. And I guess this is a plug for our book, Tinker. You can find it on our website, all about uh, adapting and changing activities to meet the needs of your group versus no 100 activities only one way how to use them. Uh, so yeah, thank you, Hannah. That was a great question and a great answer. You're welcome, Phil. Okay, so this is a question from Trevor McFlurry. He asks, I'm starting my first real job in the industry tomorrow. Any advice or things you guys wish you would have known? So without knowing too much detail on like the kind of job you're doing, the specifics of it, first of all, congrats for entering into this industry. I really hope you get a lot out of it and I hope that it serves you. I think something I wish I would have known is that when I first started, you know, sort of reference it with a jump in, jump out piece, I was really stuck on this is the way I have to do it, even though I didn't agree. I've mentioned this before that I, in another episode somewhere that I'm not a big fan of the stories uh, with low elements. It just doesn't meet my style. And for the for many, many, many years, I used to do stuff because that was how I thought it was supposed to be done. And I would never change or adapt or anything like that. And also, if things were flopping, I would, I would just... It's like I would immerse myself in the flopping and just keep digging that hole and not stopping. There would be activities that weren't working and I wouldn't know what to do otherwise. So I just keep going. And I, in reality, I should have just stopped and said, this isn't working, right? Like just been honest with the group and just said, this is fine. Like, let's go and do something else. Like walk to a new location. Sometimes I would do activities in a spot on a field and I'd be stuck there for a while. And it would just be like, Picking my bag up and moving across to the other corner of the field and doing activities over there would help free up like my brain a little bit to be able to focus. It would be that gap, like that break. Sometimes now I will purposely like add activities that give my me a breather from having to speak as much, or I'll go and say like I have to go and check my bag for my props, and there's there's nothing I'm checking. I'm just going over there to take a sip of water or something, feeling like I had to be on all the time, like. When I'm 
with a group, like I have to be go, go, go. It just doesn't, it doesn't serve anyone because you're going to get burned and you're going to get disinterested. And so taking time for yourself in a program when you're facilitating, there's certain things like, of course, you have to be like 100% on board with, focused on. If it's technical stuff in the air, then, you know, don't get distracted, focus on what's going on. But I think it's like the first aid or rule of like protecting yourself. And so I think about that when you're facilitating activities, having conversations with groups that just give a question, let them speak, give that time. And if things aren't working, just move on to something else. Don't dig your heels in and hope that things will get better. So that would be one piece of advice. This is something if you're like going to be working in on high elements a lot, challenge course elements in the air, getting used to climbing and doing it, you know, climbing on your course. I think it's a valuable thing to do. And I mention this a lot to people when I'm training them is that once I've finished training, it shouldn't be like the only time you ever climbed on your elements, like actually participated as well. You should figure out how to do in, in-house staff days on the course where you get to be a participant, but you also get to go in the air because there's the physical component of it, which is like getting your body used to climbing and being in the air, getting used to tying knots again, like all of those things. But also it's the empathy that you all have for your participants, especially if you're someone who's maybe a nervous climber. Like I'm not the most confident in the air in the world. Like I work with other people who are so skilled in the and talented in the air, they'll do stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I think really, really confident people in the air, nothing against them. That's awesome that you have those skills in the air, but I just don't think that you truly were able to empathize with those people who are nervous. So when you have people like really scared, I just don't think that they know what it feels like. And so being in the air and climbing and ha- doing that, outside of your programming, I think it's a good skill to do. People will often say to me when we're at the course, like, oh, Phil, you must stay so fit staying, like getting to climb all the time on this stuff. I'm like, I don't do that much. You know, I do a lot of stuff on the ground, like looking upwards. Like I've got incredible neck muscles and some issues with my lower back from staring up in the air the whole day. That's pretty much my day. And so we also intentionally here at High Five spend time climbing like uh, we were out checking some rapid links up in the air and the real point was just you know partly the maintenance of the course but also to get in the air i hadn't climbed in a while and then the very next week i was doing a level two training so it was so important that i had that experience so i could tie it in so i think that that's some advice i would give to a new person but also experienced people like actually go and participate on your elements rather than just belaying from the ground all the time, actually be a participant in the air, even if you're nervous. Give it a go. Maybe don't, you know, climb the whole way. That's fine. But at least you've had an experience of what it's like, so you can actually be in the shoes or or the harness, more specifically, of your participants when they end up climbing themselves. Hopefully those two pieces are helpful to you, Trevor, and feel free to continue to reach out and let us know how the job is going. And if you run into any other questions, then feel free to ask them and I'll either answer them directly on Instagram or maybe I'll save them like I did for this one for an episode. Okay, so this next question comes from Cody Roberts. Shout out to Cody and all of your friends and your family. You could, Cody, tell them all that I gave them a shout out. 
But I actually think the most efficient way is to send them out a link to this episode and then have them all listen to it and all download the episode. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the question from Cody. On our climbing tower, we've been using ATCs for a, as long as I've been around. Quick note, ATC, Air Traffic Controller, it's an aperture friction device produced by Black Diamond. I was chatting with one of the trainers from Synego about why we do not use a Grigory, and he said that from a training point of view, the ATC was much, much better. That being said, what's the difference between an ATC and a Grigory? Which is better for challenge course facilitation? And should my course make the switch? So I could answer that question and I have the answer in my head. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to reach out to our resident expert in all things technical, which is Chris Damboys. So Chris, I'm throwing that question to you. What's the difference between an ATC and Grigory? Which is better for challenge course facilitation? And why should and should my course make the switch? It's a great question. And I and I noticed the question is in three parts. And each part has a different component to it. And there may be a need to clarify more about, particularly when the guest questioner asks, should my challenge course swap over? How do they use their challenge course? Are they a training organization? Are they a direct service that's only staff-based belays? Are they a a program-based where they teach participants to belay? You know, all those kinds of questions go on. But from a purely practical standpoint in terms of the ATC versus the Grigory, the fundamental difference is an ATC is a friction-based device. And a Grigri relies on both friction and a camming action. There's an actual rotational cam in the device that locks up the device. So in some circumstances, a Grigri is known as an, an assisted braking belay device. And an ATC is known as a belay device. There's no assist in there, meaning if you take your hand off, the brake handoff under a loaded situation with an ATC, the rope will run freely. With an assisted braking, with some amount of tension on the rope and sometimes not even a full grip, just the act of putting pressure on the rope um, in a Grigri will allow the cam to operationally engage. They were once known as hands-free devices Many people quickly learned that was untrue, particularly the person on the other end of the rope who ended up on the ground. The, the hard part about the decision to go to Grigory's really is around, you still have to learn how to belay properly. A Grigory will allow you to make a lot of mistakes in your learning that you might never realize are mistakes. So if you learn to belay with a friction device in a suitable environment where you're being coached properly, you're being backed up properly in the event you do something wrong, you're going to learn about how friction works in a belay system and how a belay device at a basic functional level works. Whereas a Grigory can allow you to make lots of mistakes and not actually understand how the device works. 
So even in, you know, high end rock climbing situations and other places, they always teach you on an ATC and then you eventually graduate to some form of assisted braking, you know, belay device, a grigri or a trango cinch or something else. I think part of it really depends on the application of the client site, right? Are they staff only belays? Are they staff who've been there and they have a high skill level? Or is this a summer camp where every year they have a new crop of belayers um, and they've got to teach belaying really quickly? I think that that a lot of those kind of questions need to get answered before you can really answer the, the caller's question, if you will. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What are, you, what are your thoughts as you're hearing me talk about this? Yeah, I think that from a perspective of why people introduced the Grigory was the assumption that it was easier. Right, like if I if I know I've got a lot of turnover of staff, I'm going to utilize time that it would take to train. Instead, throw that m- potential time and value into money that I will spend on something a little bit more expensive that I could um, somewhat assume would be easier. And I think that that's from a from a training perspective. I think that's as you suggested, where mistakes and bad practice come into play. And then when those people leave that location where they were maybe doing a Grigory and they, they run across another org that you doesn't use them and uses ATCs, they might have the assumption that they're a great belayer and then make some poor technical choices when it comes to an ATC. And I also know that there have been cases of incident where I know they've changed it in the newer Grigory, which I also find a little funny that Petzl have decided to add in a fix to an issue, which is... There, if someone pulled the lever thinking that it was going to break, it actually unlocked. So that was where programmatically you'd have some issues with people freaking out, grabbing the, the lever, panicking, and then making a mistake and opening it. And so now it's built so that if you pull too hard, then it will lock itself again. Well, one version is yeah, one you version. can still get the Grigory 2 or you can get the Grigory Plus. The yeah. Grigory Plus has the auto panic function. The Grigory 2 which is still out there and there are tens of thousands of them out there in use because they're still fully functional. If you don't know which one you even have in your hands, if you're not skilled enough to even know that you're going to have a rude awakening with one of them. If you pull the handle back too hard and don't have good control of the brake strand. And I think that's the funny thing, you know, many people, even people who have used Grigory's in a long time, if you ask them what is actually providing the braking force they think they're controlling with that lever handle when the reality is they're really controlling with the grip strength of their brake hand on that strand, forcing that rotational cam to engage. You shouldn't be having slack in the brake hand and then using the lever like a throttle to open up the port through which the rope goes through. It's just it isn't designed that way. I would urge anybody who is using a Grigory to go to the Grigory, you know, go to the Petzl website or if you're using a Trango Cinch, their website, whatever it is, find that ABD manufacturer and watch their videos on what they want you to do. They're very specific. They're not hands-free devices. They still require what we call P-bus sort of hand movements, the pull, brake, under, slide hand movements, total control of the brake strand at all times and all of that. It's a, it's a little bit like a Lamborghini is a much more stable car on the road than your typical Honda Civic. However, if you're going to train a brand new driver, 
I would bet you would get better results training them in the Honda Civic than putting them in the, in the Lamborghini, which has all the bells and whistles. They're more likely to go immediately off the road with a high performance car. And I kind of think of the Grigory as a higher performance belay device. I also wanted to read the one statement we have in our standard operating procedures, the high five guide that talks about this particular topic. It says there are breaking assist devices in the marketplace that are designed to assist the belayer by assisting the locking of the rope in the event of a fall. As fail-safe as this feature sounds, camming devices like these are considered assist devices and still require close attention or manual operation by a properly trained belayer. Lowering climbers appropriate with this type of belay device takes skill and practice, and you just can't rely on the device. Camming devices such as Grigory's are also expensive relative to other belay devices, and that's very true. You can, you know, for the, the new Grigory Plus, is probably close to $90. The ATC is eighteen ninety five, and the yeah. Grigri is ninety nine. So you can get six or seven for the price of one. So I don't know if you swapped out all your ATCs for Grigri's. What's the budget? Because <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a different ballpark. Yeah, all of a sudden, if we swap them all out at our at our site, we commonly have ten in there. We're looking at a thousand dollar upgrade. And for Couldn't what purpose? Yeah, could could not justify it versus the goal and the purpose and the outcomes. So I think that uh, summarizes, Cody. Our takeaway is 100% agree with the folks over at Cinego. That from a training perspective, learning in an AT- how to use an ATC is a better transition to then move on to the Grigory. But you've got to think of the why behind why you might want to use it. And there is a cost that comes associated with that. And from our perspective, I'm not entirely sure it's worth it. Thanks, All right. Phil. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. So thank you, everyone, for making it all the way to this point in the episode. Okay, so I'm just going to read a review from someone who went on to Apple Podcasts and wrote a review. This one is from, wow, this is quite the name. There's no way to pronounce this. It's just a bunch of letters. J-H-F-F-R-G-K-R-X-G-J. Writes, lots of information, five stars. High Five is able to provide great nuggets of useful information in every episode I've listened to. If nothing else, they provide a good laugh at a corny joke at the end. Oh yeah, we used to do dad jokes post-credit. Uh, if you didn't know that we did that, go and check. There was, there's at least 25-ish episodes somewhere that have dad jokes built into the end. Yeah, so that was a thing. Anyway, thank you uh, so much to that reviewer. You can find us on Instagram at Vertical Playpen. That's where you could submit any questions and they could be featured in an upcoming episode of this podcast and write a review. Similarly for that, you'll get featured as well. That's about it. So thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Stay safe and stay connected. Thank you once again. I keep saying thank you, but I do, do truly mean it. It's it's awesome that anyone cares about anything that I have to say. So thank you for listening and see you on the next one. Bye. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try.
Thanks for giving. I think I found the guy. <laughs>